Hi, I want to tell you about a new free PDF ebook that's available now from Value Capture. It's titled A Playbook for Habitual Excellence, a Leader's Roadmap from the Life and Work of Paul H. O'Neill Sr. So this ebook is a compilation of speeches and remarks given by Mr. O'Neill. I think it's really inspiring how he lays out a pathway for habitual excellence. You could call it a roadmap. You could call it a playbook. I think it's really powerful, and I invite you to check it out. You can go to www.valuecapturellc.com slash playbook. Welcome to Habitual Excellence, presented by Value Capture. This podcast and our firm is all about helping you and your organization achieve habitual excellence via one unifying focus, one value-based structure, and one performance system. In other words, it's about helping you capture dramatically more value through achieving perfect care and perfect safety for patients and staff. To learn more about Value Capture and our services, visit www.valuecapturellc.com. Welcome to Habitual Excellence. I'm Mark Graven, and in today's episode, we're joined by Patrick Anderson. He's CEO of an organization called Rural Cap, the Rural Alaska Community Action Program, Inc. Patrick, how are you today? Oh, I'm having a really good day up here in Anchorage, Alaska. Mark, the uh, sun is out, and as we go into the 4th of July week, we of course have 4th um, happening on Saturday, so we get a day off on Friday, and we're expecting temperatures in the low 80s. Uh, that's uh, something that we look forward to for maybe a week or two until we get so tired of it that we want to go back to cooler temperature. And that might come soon enough, right? Uh, yes, although uh, global warming has changed our uh, paradigm up here. Unfortunately. But, um, I'm really really thrilled you could join us today and, and share some of your thoughts and reflections um, and, you know, from your career and as, as a leader um, from uh, Paul O'Neill, who, um, you know, listeners to this podcast, um, you know, will, will probably recognize as, um, among other things, uh, you know, founder of the firm Value Capture, um, CEO of Alcoa, um, Secretary of the Treasury, um, involved in the Pittsburgh Regional Health Initiative and the patient safety movement. So, you know, um, it's going to be our theme today. And, and Patrick, to, to get things started, you know, wh- wh- when did you first um, get exposed to you know, Mr. O'Neill's leadership style and ideas that he was sharing? I was the executive administrator of a rural health care system starting in 2003. And then, as you and I have talked before, in 2004, approximately uh, May, I became aware of the lean management uh, system. At, at that point, I began uh, applying it, uh, albeit not uh, in the greatest way, we all have a learning curve, to the health system that I ran with, with great results. Um, and as I was looking for stories and inspiration, there were very few in the healthcare arena back then, but one of them was the uh, Pittsburgh Regional Health Initiative. Mm-hmm. So I think it was around 2005 or 2006, I came across an article um, that indicated that uh, Secretary O'Neill uh, had been recruited into that initiative in Pittsburgh. And as a part of it, he was bringing his own personal experience 
Uh, I didn't read much about that personal experience until Steven Spear wrote his mm-hmm. book, uh, Chasing the Rabbit. Right. I think that was 2008 or 2009. So it was kind of mm-hmm. later in my application of lean, but um, I became aware of the efforts. It was about 2007 that uh, Virginia Mason, a uh, regional hospital in the Pacific Northwest, uh, had applied. But by then I, I had been looking at a lot of initiatives uh, a couple of which were real impressive out of the Pittsburgh Regional Health Initiative. Uh, the first one was about um, central line um, acquired blood uh, uh, infections. Right. And in reading about how that occurred, uh, it was absolutely amazing <laughs> to see that a procedure, if allowed to go to the infection stage, produced as much as a 50% death rate, was pretty much eliminated. So what I recall, and I haven't looked back to my notes to see if my recollection is accurate, uh, but what I recall is that there were something like uh, 42 CL, uh, CLABS infections, uh, and after the uh, health initiative uh, completed, with application of lean and application of a, a zero target uh, initiative, they'd gotten down to where I think they had only five um, <laughs> central line infections. And the, the part that got to me, Mark, was when they reported that the five were from uh, individual uh, physicians who decided that they knew what they were doing and didn't want to adhere to the standard work mm-hmm. that had been developed for uh, insertion of central lines that that was uh, uh, quite revealing for me so it just reinforced the way that I felt about central line or uh, about lean and application Uh, we didn't insert central line infections but the uh, uh, perfecting the patient experience uh, that they began working on I believe as late as the late 1990s uh, was inspiring Mm-hmm. Now, the knowledge uh, that we could create those kinds of improvements, particularly given the respect part that Secretary O'Neill emphasized, uh, it took me a while to really connect on the respect uh, platform of the Toyota production system, uh, but to understand that you needed to have great deal of respect for your patients, for your employees, for your uh, fellow executives, collaborators. And you also had to take on the tough challenges. You had to face the brutal facts that if you got a central line infection, uh, it was going to cost you a bundle, not only to uh, fight it, but uh, in any subsequent litigation. So I remember uh, not as clearly as the CLI story, but I remember uh, uh, Secretary O'Neill's insistence on truth. Uh, I saw that uh, a little bit later in 2007 when Mike Rona came to a, a lean healthcare conference as a keynote speaker in Alaska and uh, was talking about uh, the same things. So it, it, he had a significant influence on my thinking. Yeah, and we, we can sort of uh, 
unpack that and, and, and dig deeper into elements of that. But um, your recollection of um, the work that was done in Pittsburgh, it was um, some of it was under Paul O'Neill's tutelage and Steve Spear was involved. You know, they were bringing lessons from Alcoa and Toyota and, and Dr. Richard Shannon. Um, and, and I believe um, Dr. Shannon spoke at the same Cindy Jimerson conference where you and I first met. Do I, does that seem like a <laughs> proper yeah. recollection? I think he did. Yeah, that was uh, fascinating in a couple of respects because I'm not trained as a healthcare administrator. Everything I've learned has been in the past uh, 13, 14 years. Uh, but yes, that was a, a powerful uh, conference. And while I have no specific recollections uh, of specific speakers, for a, a lot for me were the conversations that occurred in the interim uh, between sessions and, and uh, social and breakout events. And that, and that includes meeting you. Um, you know, I gained a lot of knowledge there, but... Uh, um, it, it was the connections that happened. Uh, yeah. Nida Grunden, who we had talked about, worked for the Pittsburgh Regional Health Initiative. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I spoke with her, I, I got her book on um, the, the the initiatives that were happening. And uh, like, like I said, they just uh, were powerful motivating forces. They kept me moving in that um, direction. Yeah. Uh, probably a bigger concern for our rural health systems was the work that Pittsburgh Regional did on MRSA. Mm. Um, we had a breakout in one of the villages that I administered, and I figured out really quick that uh, MRSA is not an infection that you uh, are casual about. Yeah. Uh, if you only have one antibiotic that works, and we had a couple of patients, it was real important for us to um, target zero MRSA outbreaks. And so some of the, the, the findings that they had out of there, I mean, I, I certainly didn't know about the potential for um, testing for MRSA before coming into um, a hospital facility or mm -hmm. that there were actually colonies of MRSA on significant numbers of people that could be decolonized. Um, it, it's just that other brilliant people think of these things, Mark, and when it comes into the orbit of my world, and I'm able to uh, help coach and educate uh, our staff about things like that and find strategies for trying to get to that perfecting patient care. Yeah. One of the outcomes, um, and I think I might have shared with this with you before, I had 11 community health aides. They are lay people um, with um, training over a number of years, uh, on how to use an algorithm to basically be an extension of physician assistants, advanced nurse practitioners, and doctors. So they work under the licensure of a doctor, but they apply an algorithm to common health problems. It takes them about an hour to go through it. Um, and they ask a series of program questions, hence the algorithm, and they come out uh, with, if they're experienced, a treatment recommendation. Uh, of course, after you've seen so many ear infections in young children, you you pretty much figure out what the treatment is going to be, but then they run it by the uh, PA, the ANP, mm -hmm. or the doctor, and uh, then they're able to uh, take their prescriptive abilities. But utilizing lean methodology and respect for people, 
our 11 out of about 550 community health aides in the state of Alaska for a period of five years took 50% of the peer voted awards, uh, one they called the Shining Star. Mm-hmm. That was the practitioner who uh, had great attributes. And then the Rising Star, that was a new community health aide. So the, the discipline and the respect that, in part, I got from understanding Secretary O'Neill's approach, uh, plus honesty, uh, really led to some great results for the people of the region. Yeah. And, you know, when you talk about perfecting the patient experience, you know, I think we would agree not being harmed is part of that perfect experience. Um, it's, it's, it's a possibility that a lot of times patients aren't even really aware um, you know, they're, they're not aware of the risks. And, you know, one thing I admire um, greatly about what um, Paul O'Neill did was really, but, you know, in his time at Alcoa and as he inspired and coached others in healthcare was really focusing on safety, employee safety at Alcoa uh, in healthcare, both patient safety and employee or staff safety. Um, how, how was that approach an inspiration to you and the organizations that that you've led of of really focusing and leading with safety? Well, Chasing the Rabbit was a fascinating look. Uh, By then, I had been a businessman for about 30 years. I sat on the board of an organization that did uh, $300 in revenue. And to read the story of how Secretary O'Neill, when he had his first teleconference, didn't focus on the financial good that he expected to do to Alcoa, but stressed safety. Um, I I remember a part of the book, and I haven't read it for uh, years, and I think Stephen Spear revised it and put out a different uh, title. Yes, the High Velocity Edge. High Velocity Edge, yes. Um, But when I saw the the lengths that uh, Secretary O'Neill went to in enforcing among his executives uh, his uh, absolute uh, belief that they needed to reduce any incidences of harm to his employees down to zero. Uh, I recall the story of one of his executives not reporting something within the 24 hours that uh, Secretary O'Neill asked for any incident or near miss to be reported to have someone's judgment that I think it was a gas leak of some kind was not a near miss. And then he terminated a very popular senior executive told me that this man cared. So I had already had kind of that approach towards uh, uh, my employees and patients and practitioners Uh, But what I learned about that played out uh, just two and a half years ago when I arrived at Rural Cap. Um, The first thing that I did once I had my chief people and culture officer hired was to establish a safety committee. Mm -hmm. Um, And I am personally engaged in every meeting, although she leads it. And what we've done is to make sure that everything that could harm uh, one of our employees uh, is addressed positively. So uh, the first thing I realized uh, was that we didn't have a fire alarm in the ancient building that we had. There there are alarms up on the uh, ceiling, but 
they weren't functional. When I was mm-hmm. told that, it just scared the crap out of me. Uh, we immediately uh, uh, engaged a contractor to come in and, and put in a system. Uh, we had regular uh, fire alarms. We have about a 30,000 square foot building, maybe 90 to 100 employees in here. Uh, and our uh, gathering area is a significant distance away from our building. But we clear the building in three and a half uh, minutes. Our building leads for each section of the building, they have their hard hat, their flashlight, their whistle. Uh, and uh, they are all trained along with a uh, deputy, a second in command for when they're not there to make sure that everyone in the building is out, that no one is injured on the way. We don't tell them to run. We walk them out. When you clear a building in three and a half minutes with 90 to 110 employees, that's pretty darn good. Mm-hmm. And we've had reason to use it. In uh, November of 2018, we had an earthquake. Uh, I was not here at the time. Um, but as soon as we discovered some of the hazards that our employees might have faced, we corrected those immediately. So uh, it, I would have to say that the Alcoa experience, um, where they faced some of the most brutal safety um, Risk. challenges anywhere yeah. Yeah. was very instructive. Um, what I say today is that I, I want every employee to go home in the same condition that they came in, but I revise that. So as a part of Breakthrough Initiative 2, our uh, employee healing from organizational trauma, I've started to say, gosh, a lot of the damage done to employees is not physical, it's psychological. Uh, a lot of uh, current press reports talk about that. So my thought was, well, and, and the thought of my chief people and culture officer was that why don't we address organizational trauma and why don't we say that we want to have our employees go home in better condition mm-hmm. than they left here? So we're working on that. But again, uh, that foundation that Secretary O'Neill uh, established, and again, I've never met him, uh, never I never heard him speak until I looked at a YouTube video mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. But through uh, NIDA's book, through some of the Pittsburgh Regional Initiative uh, uh, press coverage and through the projects that they worked on, uh, uh, reinforced by uh, Spears' book, uh, just all played a huge part in the uh, Respect for People platform of the Toyota production system. I take that extremely seriously today in large part because of a an outstanding man like Secretary O'Neill can do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can at least try. And then I realize that there, and my coffee cup says this, it has a Yoda figure on it, it says mm-hmm. do or do not, there is no try. <laughs> and so we do. Yeah. Uh, the continuous improvement part makes a lot more sense if you understand that uh, doing um, get, leads to the knowledge that you need to improve it. So, um, as we've focused on safety, it just becomes more apparent that, gosh, this is an entire system. So if we take care of the physical safety, um, if we try to have a, a zero harm, uh, that means we analyze every issue that faces us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember reading of uh, an employee who crossed over into a no access area and was electrocuted. And the next day they, they had solutions of making sure that nobody could 
pass because the barriers were unpassable. Yeah. Uh, so uh, th- those are things that uh, I'm able to coach my staff to think about. We have a problem. Uh, let's figure out how to uh, assess the root cause of that problem and see if mm-hmm. we can put appropriate countermeasures in place. One of the things you said there, um, you know, the, the, the goal of having employees go home in a better physical and emotional state at the end of the day, you know, going home better than they were when they walked in the door is, um, you know, exactly um, an idea that uh, Bill O'Rourke talked about in an earlier episode. Bill O'Rourke worked um, with Paul O'Neill for a long time at Alcoa and, um, in Bill's recollections, um, Secretary O'Neill um, set that goal of like, well, let, let's not just focus on, I mean, it's an important thing, you know, beyond not injuring people, let's help people go home healthier. And, you know, so Bill O'Rourke remembers being inspired by that. And uh, yeah, that same idea. Well, it's hard not to be work. inspired <laughs> by that. Um, you know, Part, part of the lean lessons that I learned is that you, you do need to have the collective will. Um, and so to get to that is a, a fairly long process. So you and I have talked before about the Rogers innovation curve and mm-hmm. how do we bring people into the fold? Um, I was brought into the early adopters fold for lean and healthcare for a variety of reasons. Uh, part of which we discussed in the past is my exposure to Dr. W. Edwards Deming. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm sure uh, Secretary O'Neill was influenced by Deming. I don't know if you had a chance to ever chat with him about that. Uh, but respect for your employees uh, means that uh, it should mean more than they just come to work and uh, put in their day and get a paycheck and go back. If we really want to inspire them to mm-hmm. implement programs like perfecting patient care, they, they have to be inspired about it. They can't be traumatized in the workplace themselves. And uh, as a consequence, we uh, have developed or are developing a management training program uh, to try and teach the skills that make our employees successful. I just had a conversation with my uh, chief people and culture officer. Uh, We're going to be using a training matrix, uh, the one with the uh, uh, circle and the quarters um, up on top of it. Uh, We're going to make it experiential and coaching. But I told her that uh, we'll do a survey on what the needs are. We'll talk to employees. We'll engage them on what skill sets they have and what skill sets they feel that like they could improve upon. Uh, but the first four units were set in stone. Uh, that's my responsibility to create the culture of the organization, um, which I, I do by basically coaching, explaining. But the first uh, module I told her we needed to create was on respect. Mm-hmm pure and simple on respect. And how we do that, I don't know yet, but we'll develop that. But then as we talked about uh, how we uh, engage employees, we talked about humble inquiry. So Edgar Schein's uh, process of engaging people 
uh, inspiring and motivating them are all topics that we want to have in those first four modules. We use the TWI methodology of uh, no more than two hours of training, no more than 10 people, and then a lot of repetition. Uh, but for us uh, to be able to capture that respect um, means that we really care about our employees mm -hmm. and we want them to be learning the skills that uh, keep them both psychologically and physically safe. And so I think I, I, I wish I had known how Secretary O'Neill felt about that part, but uh, we're, we're well on our pathway to recognizing and, and building in healing from organizational trauma. And I'm not sure that too many people have uh, insight on how we do that other than create an environment where your, your work is respected and we teach the skill set that makes that real clear. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing Mr. O'Neill really emphasized um, was, you know, that everybody should be treated with respect and dignity every day by everyone they run across in the workplace. And he seemed to really believe that deeply, um, you know, and, 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 you know, he would always emphasize, you know, you know, everyone deserved to be treated with dignity and respect without regard to race or gender or nationality or any other defining characteristic. And there, the, the parallel, I mean, it's grounded in principles that go more deeply, more broadly than pointing just to Toyota. Um, a lot of these are um, principles that, that come from many places among great philosophies or great management systems or, um, or great leaders, right? And I, I agree with that. Um, you you had uh, Katie Anderson on talking about her relationship with uh, Mr. Yoshino, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I looked a little bit more into uh, Mr. Yoshino after that conversation. And what what I saw was a humble person, a humble man, who learned uh, as he progressed along in his career. He didn't think of himself as a big shot. He referred to the mm -hmm. other big shots as big shots, but uh, not himself. And I just got the feeling that uh, Secretary O'Neill, despite his prodigious accomplishments, was someone you could sit down and have a conversation with. Yeah. He just seemingly cared. Uh, and like I said, I've never met him. I, I, I uh, certainly recall his uh, tenure as Secretary of the Treasury. Mm -hmm. uh, it impacted a lot of the business that I uh, served on the board of. Uh, but you know, someone like uh, me or someone like Mr. Yoshino can be inspired by him, plus all of the giant intellects that contributed to the thoughts that led today to this whole uh, respect culture and the uh, true caring for employees. There's, mm -hmm. You can certainly uh, pretend that you care, but uh, I think people genuinely understand if you do. So when I tell someone that I want them to go home in as good or better shape than they came to work in, uh, they believe it because number one, I live it. I show up at all of the safety committees. Uh, uh, whenever we have a drill, I don't exempt myself. I'm out there with them because I know that someday it may mean a difference. Uh, so our, our culture of respect has driven down a lot of our issues. Uh, we, we have cooks. And one of our workers' comp issues had been um, 
knife cuts during the uh, cutting process. So my staff um, looked at it, figured out what the root cause was, uh, developed countermeasures, got appropriate gloves so that if someone wasn't slicing correctly and they slipped and they got their hand, it wouldn't go through the glove. And uh, little things like that make a difference. And the fact that every time something happens, they inform me about it. Uh, we do that at safety committee and leadership team. We talk about all of our risks uh, right away. And then I make sure that there's a countermeasure. It's not as strict as uh, uh, Secretary O'Neill at Alcoa, but it does have the same derivation and and uh, the same intent behind it. It's that when we discover something that potentially is damaging to an employee, uh, we try to fix it. Yeah. Uh, we do. We, we have these little... Uh, of course, you, you don't have those in, in places that, well, maybe you did in Texas but uh, and in uh, Massachusetts, but we wear little uh, um, ice cleats. Um, when it ices up around here, we just mm-hmm. to walk to our cars, we mm-hmm. have yeah. to put on uh, ice cleats. And we have little changing stations. Uh, we have stations with the rock, sand, and gravel that we uh, uh, put out there to... Uh, help make it safe for our employees. So our slips and falls have gone down uh, quite a bit. Uh, most of them are in our remote places where we don't have as much interaction. Uh, but as I recall with, uh, with Alcoa, they had sites all over the world and it didn't matter where you were, if you were in South America and something happened that was potentially damaging, uh, it had better be presented to uh, President O'Neill within 24 hours and a countermeasure proposed within 48. Uh, those kinds of details stick with me, and I'm not necessarily a detail person. Mm-hmm. But um, one one thing I wanted to add, two other things I wanted to ask you about. And so, um, the habitual excellence playbook, if you will, kind of you know start among other things started with the idea um, as as. Mr. O'Neill um, led Alcoa that, you know, folk doing all of the things that would be required to become world-class with safety would translate into being world-class, being best in the world at everything they did within Alcoa. And I know you're two and a half years in, um, you know, to your role as CEO at RollCap, but I'm curious if you see evidence of, of that starting to take root, the focus on safety having a spillover effect into um, you know what what he called and the, the name of this podcast habitual excellence in spades. Um, I have never been connected to a transformation that is working as fast as this one, and part of it, I believe, is because I've been able to hire my own executive team. We have been able to have a lot of aligning conversations. Um, The the safety committee and respect for people uh, is huge. So I introduced my chief operating officer uh, to humble inquiry. Um, I I spent an entire day at a lean frontier uh, conference learning humble inquiry Mm Unfortunately, Dr. Shine was not a part of the training uh, cohort then, but um, I I had a good team of folk, and it was an extremely frustrating um, exercise, as I recall. But when I introduced it to my chief operating officer, he jumped at it. 
within a day, uh, he was coming back and saying, Patrick, this is great stuff. Uh, within a week, he had like 10 copies of Shine's book, mm-hmm. and he was giving it to his staff, his direct reports, uh, and he began practicing it. Uh, I, I've been trying to practice it. I ask a lot of questions, uh, uh, and I make it real clear that uh, based on my research on the Rogers Innovation Curve, that I'm not going to force someone who's a laggard or a late adopter into changing. I'm going to let their peer group do that. And that's a huge part of humble inquiry is that if you understand your workforce, if you understand their motivations, uh, that they're ultimately going to make the decision to buy in or not to buy in. Mm. Uh, That was the whole motivational uh, interviewing process for Uh, behavioral health and for a medical is that unless you can find a way to get adherence by a patient or a client in behavioral health, you're not going to be successful. Uh, It took me a while, but when I began to realize through Dr. Shine's work that the same thing works for employees, um, I was mentioning that this transformation is the fastest I've ever seen uh, I, I shared with you years ago the, the day at rural Ca- or at uh, Chugachmut, about five days into our transfer, five years into our transformation, that I was sitting at my desk and realized no one had asked me to help them solve a problem in four or five days. Mm-hmm. Uh, that moment came here about six months ago, and so um, my executive team, when they get a problem, they're solving it. Um, the reason we're so far ahead in putting up our rural cap performance management information system is that uh, they've made such great progress. We have a lot of story cards around here. We're working on prioritization, but uh, I need a way to conduct my daily, weekly, and monthly standard work as a CEO and assure that we're on track. Uh, right now, I do that by conversations with my executive team. There are uh, seven of us in total, uh, and two of them are um, not a part of the C-suite, but are part of our development, communications, and research and policy. So as we talk among each other, I will look at the list of projects we have going underway and ask uh, where we are at. But you don't get to this point without your employees feeling that you have their best interest and the absolute uh, way that we've done it is to show that we care uh, about their safety and to adopt breakthrough initiative two, which was the healing from organizational trauma. Uh, we, we talk about that regularly. We send out information about it regularly and uh, we have questions that we ask of employees and we mean it. Most conversations, when you ask someone how they're doing, they're, oh, I'm fine. But we say, no, we really want to know how you are doing. Um, how did you, how did, I ask a couple of employees how they felt um, about their workplace when I first got here. And one of them had actually accepted a new job. Uh, she's now on my executive team, but she was out the door when I asked her to stay. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one on my executive team um, had been uh, the subject of a rumor mill that because I had terminated a couple of uh, employees early on, uh, that she was next. And I sat her down and said, you know, there's no truth to that rumor. Uh, The moves that I made were very deliberate. And just that little simple act of hearing from my HR director at the time that there was significant concern 
and taking the time to address it as the CEO went a long way because, like I said, that peer-to-peer conversation and discussion is just so powerful, much beyond uh, what I ever knew. And uh, I can only imagine from the reading that I've done and the conversations that I've had about uh, Alcoa and Pittsburgh uh, Regional Health Initiative that that kind of true caring played a huge role. Uh, I do not want to be the source of a family missing a parent for any period of time. It guides our caution right now about the COVID-19 issue. Uh, I had one of my development staff uh, come in to do some work and I I stopped and asked her how she was doing and she was telling me. Uh, But that at the end of the conversation, she said, we so much appreciate the executive team's caution and conservatism about the COVID-19 virus and the fact that we can work from home and we've kept everyone employed and paid, uh, that goes a long way towards their willingness to put themselves out there to serve the best interests of our customers and clients and tenants. That's great. That's great. Um, One other question I wanted to ask you, you talked earlier about, you know, what you called, um, you know, the collective will and, culture change. Can a transformation, well, let me try to ask it as an open-ended question. How likely would it be that a transformation like this could be spearheaded by anybody other than the CEO? Uh, Absolutely, unequivocally, no. I have learned and tried to mitigate the power of the CEO one of the experiences I had at Chugachmute was that I had mentioned something. Next thing I knew it was being done. So I sat my lean champion down and I said, do you understand that I'm trying to inspire conversations about how we tackle problems, not to issue edicts about how we solve them? And yes, he did understand that. I have more of an understanding of that today than I did then. Um, And so I mentioned that. I say this is an invitation to a conversation, not to tell me how you're going to do it, but to discuss. And so collective will is our pathway right now towards forming a um, command of team of teams, and then eventually a team of teams approach where we have people talking about solutions as opposed to saying, do it my way or the highway. No, you, you, you just, um, you, you prompted a story. I heard a hospital a health system CEO tell um, in a panel discussion that I moderated where he was um, visiting the cafeteria, doing a Gemba visit, if you will. And, the, you know, people working there were talking about different foods that were preparing. And he made some offhanded comment that he didn't even remember about saying he didn't like peas. And then he learned at some point down the road that his offhanded comment about his own food preference had likewise been interpreted as an edict. And he learned a year or two later that they had literally stopped serving peas because the CEO said he didn't like them, which he he shared that story in the spirit of, you know, trying to be aware of where your formal power, your organizational power um, especially with long-standing habits in an organization, um, 
know, he, he, he felt misinterpreted, but he said he learned from that of, as, as I hear you saying, Patrick, you know, um, making sure people don't, don't misinterpret a question as an edict. It's a very powerful lesson. Well, leadership by the CEO is not about anything other than using my experience to prevent a death spiral, to move us forward, to inspire us, to develop new product lines, to have a solid strategic direction, uh, and to have in place uh, the performance measures that we look at, uh, not by saying do this, do that, but by letting my team develop those performance standards. So um, when, when I conduct a Kaizen, I'm very sensitive. I'm the only one capable in the entire organization of conducting a full Kaizen that I step back and I not say much that I teach and that I coach and that I let their experience uh, draw out uh, the problems that they see, the potential solutions and countermeasures that they envision. And, and then I try to guide it towards a peer discussion and let them know, uh, I'm not going to countermand anything that you say. Uh, you guys are making good progress. Whatever progress we make in this Kaizen will be what is achievable for us, given our current state of knowledge. That being said, Mark, um, that approach has produced a lot of improvement. I've had to be patient with a number of areas where I felt like I could have gone in and said, do this and do that, and we could make those improvements. But instead, I've let my chief operating officer guide that. It's his job. It's what I hired him for. And what I do is coach him on where I think we could be or should be, ask for where he feels we could be, and then we adjust and align. Uh, part of it is my responsibility for the financial performance. So we're currently involved in a discussion right now about one of our programs that has to be substantially reconfigured. But he's the guide on that. And uh, I spend my time and efforts uh, in those areas where my unique skill set is required uh, and let him develop his. And my final question here. You talked earlier about um, organizational trauma, and and it would seem you know you come into a new organization as an outsider, and you need to understand the history, the culture, what organizational trauma might be there. Is, is it fair to say uh, an example of organizational trauma might be sort of the built up wounds from previous leaders who may have issued edicts, and boy, if I don't do what the boss says, I'm in trouble, and and, and those kind of accumulated habits that, that you then end up walking into, right? Yes. Um, I, I tell my executive team that had I known the depth of the trauma that existed here, the dismissal of two CEOs within a uh, two and a half year time frame and the hiring of a interim, we had five interim CEOs and three CEOs uh, between the start of 2016 and the end of 2018. So uh, in, in essentially a three-year period of time, uh, leadership changes with all of the trauma that that alone brings is substantial. Uh, so it is of huge concern. Uh, I'm guided by 
Dr. Deming, uh, and I'm sure uh, Secretary O'Neill had similar thoughts, but when they talk about how you create pride in work, hmm. uh, the first thing you have to do is to let them work. Um, if you don't, then the stresses that come lead me to one of two conclusions. Um, I still buy into uh, Jim Collins' um, advice of getting the right people on the bus, and oftentimes you're unable to uh, select the right people. Uh, we, we still have a lot of hiding behaviors, but if we have a person who has the right heart, is willing to learn good customer service, can understand respect, uh, we we will stick with them uh, as we teach and train them, which is what uh, Toyota does. Uh, but uh, the, the the whole field of trauma also has to recognize a couple of other things, and I've shared only a little bit of this with you, but we all come to our jobs with our own baggage. Mm-hmm. And uh, our Breakthrough Initiative for and to the uh, healing organizational trauma tries to recognize that each individual has a separate profile of trauma and a separate uh, catalog of coping mechanisms that they use. And so we want to be uh, thought of as caring enough for employees to share with us their issues, and we are working on developing a catalog of responses uh, that might help. So it's a very deep subject that we take seriously, and uh, in our uh, housing tenant population, we're going to try and help reduce depression through a couple of rapid experiments. So I've shared with you my appreciation of Joy Mei Chang's uh, social impact discussions, particularly three elements that she talks about. One of them is uh, pure lean, and that is, um, you know, don't uh, ration out your um, rapid cycle of PDSAs. Uh, Accelerate them as much as you can by making them smaller, Mm -hmm. and uh, we're going to try and do that. So a lot of smaller experiments will allow us to readjust We've not been able to do the same with employees because, quite frankly, we're not all together right now. And right. Uh, But as we were doing uh, before, we were trying to understand the depth of trauma among our employees. I just had about a 15, 20-minute uh, translational leadership conference with one of my employees, uh, in part for me to learn how information is uh, transferred and uh, in part to see if he saw the value in it. And it came out with a very valuable lesson. We, we, we had a homeless alcoholic who came into one of our, of our programs years ago before I got here, cleaned up, uh, got a real good job, and uh, found a relapse uh, fairly quickly. Um, once, uh, once he had um, achieved success in employment, uh, and to be able to learn from people about their experiences like that, even secondhand the way this was, is a, a huge part of what we do because it might allow us to look at an employee who had similar circumstances. And if we've got a countermeasure for one of our tenants and former clients, then maybe we have a countermeasure for our employee. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's uh, well, it's you know, it's really it's important work that you're doing, and um, you know, it's really it's great to hear 
how you've been inspired by um, you know, the, the work and the lessons of Paul O'Neill and, and you're building upon that and um, you know, doing important work um, for the organizations that you've led and um, really want to thank you for um, sharing those reflections and, and those lessons with us, Patrick. Well, I hope um, someone else at some point, Mark, can be inspired by little of what I offer. Yeah. Um, there's a quote that goes around that you you build what you have on the shoulders of giants. And uh, I count uh, Secretary O'Neill as one of those giants that inspired me early on and uh, drove me to learn and to work a little bit harder. So, and I thank you for your interest in in my experience uh, with the teachings of Secretary O'Neill and, you know, uh, to his family, uh, I'm grateful that uh, he lived and that he had as public a life uh, as he did and that he was so motivated to do a lot of public good. I, I just hope I can do even a small measure of what mm -hmm. he has. I'm sure the family will um, appreciate that and I'll make sure that they, um, that they get that message. So. All right. Wonderful. Well, you have a great day uh, in sunny California and I hope to bake a little bit in the sunshine, but as I told you, I, I also have my uh, mountain retreat to go to where if it gets too hot for me, it'll be probably five to eight degrees cooler. Yeah. Well, enjoy. Um, so again, our guest today has been um, Patrick Anderson. He is the CEO of an organization called Rural Cap. That's the Rural Alaska Community Action Program, Inc. Uh, Patrick, thanks again. Thanks so much. Thank you, Mark. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening to Habitual Excellence presented by Value Capture. We hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and please also rate and review it in your favorite podcast directory or app. To learn more about Value Capture and how we can help your organization on this journey to habitual excellence, visit our website at www.valuecapturellc.com.